0: Good morning. Uh, If you'd open your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 30, I believe it's uh, page 516 in the Pew Bible if you don't have your own copy. A few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Matt mentioned that uh, Ruthie had warned him that after he has not been in the pulpit for a while, he may go a little longer than usual. I suffer from the same disease as my (laughs) wife reminded me this morning. Truth is, I'm going to throw a lot at you this morning, like a side of beef. Uh, But the the passage is so well laid out on its own that I don't think you'll have any trouble going back and making connections that you might miss during the time that we spend. I'm going to try and work through this entire chapter, and please note that I use the word try. <clears throat> um, starting my timer, which means absolutely nothing in the cosmos. Uh, the, the Bible has a lot to say about how we think as well as what we're supposed to think. Passages like Ephesians 4.23 mention that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and Romans 12.2 And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Those are typical passages that speak to this issue. The truth is we can be very preoccupied with mere information and not enough with how to think, at least how to think biblically. How to think according to God's understanding of the universe. And that kind of thinking is what the Bible refers to as wisdom. It's wisdom to live rightly in God's universe as he understands reality. Enter the book of Proverbs. W.G.T. Shedd wrote this, The book of Proverbs is the best of all manuals for the formation of a well-balanced mind. The object of Solomon in composing it seems to have been to furnish to the church a summary of rules and maxims by which the Christian character having been originated by regeneration, should then be made educated and symmetrical, close quote. That's a really great statement. The design of Proverbs is to bring God's worldview into play so that each of us in all of our various roles as children, as parents, as cousins, as neighbors, as employers and employees, husbands, wives, all of those various relationships that we have, this helps us navigate all of life in a Christ-honoring, God-honoring way. And as a side note, if you never had a godly dad, this is God taking the time to mentor you personally. Book of Proverbs is just astounding. One place where this wisdom is in such broad scope opened up for us in astonishing clarity is in this text today in Proverbs 30. And it's done by offering up what I've titled 10 or 7, 10, boy, a, this will not be 10 points. Is That old Puritan joke about the, you know, the Puritans used to really go on with their points. And, you know, 60 65thly. When you've gotten to that in your sermon, you've probably gone a little too long. But one, one Puritan remarked to his congregation, this morning's sermon had so many points that this evening's sermon will be pointless. I'm not... I'm, I'm not going to go quite there, but uh, it's actually only seven master lessons of life. So with no more introduction than that, let's dig into the the passage. The opening portion, verses 1 through 14, give us the header to everything else that's going to go on. I'll spend a little more time there, and then we'll pick up our, our pace as we work through the passage and this brings us to our first point and that's codified in these 14 verses that there are universal and unrelenting temptations that we all face and we need to keep our eyes open for them and so don't be surprised when you face these same temptations over and over but these are different from what we might ordinarily consider temptations here's where we pick up our ears So, Agur, the son of Jacob, a man we know nothing about other than his mention in this singular passage, um, and that Solomon thought that his wisdom was sufficient to be included in Scripture, and under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, we still have it. He begins in verse 1 with this, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. Well, what in the world would cause that much vexation in this man's heart and mind? And in short, his weakness seems to stem from one basic thing, and that is a tendency to forget critical spiritual truths, to keep them static in the heart and mind. And this tendency is something that we all share. It's referred to by theologians as one of the noetic effects of the fall. That we hear spiritual truth, we take it in, but somehow it isn't there when we need it. So we've got to go back and be uh, reacquainted with it on a regular basis. We have trouble keeping those key biblical concepts in the forefront of our minds. And so then Agur goes through to describe a couple of those places that occur in himself. And I think you'll probably be able to identify with them as I do. So he starts off in verse 4. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know here's the first tendency that we have. And it's especially true when we're going through trial or tribulation. And it's to forget who and what God really is. And His love for me as it's rooted in the cross. It escapes us. We go through trials and all of a sudden God seems to evaporate before our eyes. We forget that He's sovereign. We forget that He orders all things in our lives well. It just disappears. And we have this temptation, all of us. And then in verse 5, he says, Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. We forget that the Bible is the only sure source of truth, and it needs to be trusted above everything else. It needs to be trusted above my own logic. It needs to be trusted above news outlets, whichever ones we might listen to. It needs to be heard and taken in above cultural trends and social media or even personal perceptions. I've got to come back and remember, the Word of God tells me the truth about the world and the human condition. And better than I can suss it out for myself. Verse 6 He says, don't add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. We forget that adding to God's word is just as dangerous and even more tempting than leaving things out. And you say, well, I don't have that temptation. Let me just remind you how often we hear today, the Lord told me, have we been adding to his word? Or do we take it as sufficient? Sometimes we get tempted to go the other way. Then verses 7 through 9. Two things. He utter, offers up a prayer. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me, first, falsehood and lying. And second, give me neither poverty nor riches. no. Feed me with the food that's needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, well, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. We forget that left to ourselves, we are unreliable. We're tempted to think our own thoughts are pretty reliable. And he says, you know what? I've learned to distrust myself. Because if I don't distrust myself, if I don't reckon with my own fallenness and that it still has an impact on me, it's going to lead to at least two things, which he mentions in the next two <laughs> verses. In verse 10, he says, Don't slander a servant to his master, lest he cursed you, curse you and you be held guilty. When I don't question myself and reckon with my fallenness, I will develop a preoccupation with other people's sins above my own. That's a temptation that's always in front of us. And then second in verse 11, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. The second thing that comes out of not reckoning with my own fallenness is that I will point the finger at everybody else for my sin. And he's saying, be careful. There's an old folk song by Anna Russell that spells out this principle really well. Quote, I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed, to find out why I killed the cat and blacked my husband's eyes. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find, and here is what he dredged up from my unconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that's why I suffer now from kleptomania. At three, I had the feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally I poison all my lovers. But I am happy now. I've learned the lesson this has taught, that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. (laughs) Easy for us to go there, isn't it? And then two more temptations before he's done. Verse 12. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. How tempted I am to pronounce myself more righteous than I am. To forget that my righteousness is Christ's righteousness, not my own. And then in verse 14. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among mankind. The temptation to prey on and to get emotional gain from other people's weaknesses. We see it in our media all the time. So, we're reminded in the first case then, this first lesson, that there are universal and unrelenting temptations that we need to be looking out for. Good for us to go back and rehearse these for ourselves. The second then comes to us in verses 15 and 16, that there are unfillable voids in people's souls. And this he does with four short little examples. And because these unfillable voids in people's souls exist, don't be surprised at the lengths people will go to to try and satisfy those voids. He uses a really quaint speech here. The leech, he says, has two daughters. Both of them have the same name, Give. Give. Give and give. You see, apart from Christ as our true satisfaction, all sorts of other things will rush in to fill those voids in our hearts. And people do what they do to try and fill those voids. And so he gives four examples, right? The grave. The grave is never full. Death never says, oh, we've had enough death now. Thank you very much. Let's let's stop people dying. Doesn't happen. The barren womb. The one who's never been able to bear children never says, Oh, I'm completely satisfied without children. Parched land never stops drinking in the water. It'll take as much rain as we can possibly give it. And fire, fire never says, Oh, I've had enough logs. It'll just burn whatever comes close to it. You see, we were made to only find true and absolute satisfaction in Christ, and if He's not that satisfaction, we'll look for it anywhere else we think we can get it. In Ephesians, Paul mentions he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having our eyes the heart, the eyes of our hearts enlightened. That we may know what is the hope to which He has called us. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? I wish I could come back and preach on that. His inheritance in the saints, not our inheritance. Astounding. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? a power that's according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. If you are an empty, aching individual this morning, Only Christ can fill that void. Only Christ. It was Augustine who said, O Lord, You have made us for Yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in You. Or that famous quote from Blaise Pascal, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known. Through Jesus Christ. It's true. When this void remains. Men will try to fill it. Sometimes in extreme. And horrific and bizarre ways. When men's actions. Don't make sense. You can be sure what they're trying to do. Is to fill some deep emptiness. Inwardly. Those things that can only be filled by God. And as long as we try to meet them. By other means. The futility of it. The inward gnawing and aching only increases so look around not only at the world but also at times in the church among our own brothers and sisters in christ we'll try to drown out that emptiness we'll try to drown it out temporarily with work even ministry sex intoxicants partying hobbies all sorts of diversions my wife would say, shopping. I don't know. I hope that isn't what's going on there. She just thinks I dress too shabbily. Often often we can't even discern for ourselves just what those desires and unfillable voids are, but they're there. And not only does this vacuum exist due to man's alienation from God because of sin, but sin has then also distorted our senses to the degree that will do anything and everything to fill the void, even by the most corrupt and perverse means. And the perversity of hearts, of men's hearts, seems to have no bounds, does it? If you doubt it, I have one word to prove it Holocaust. The proverbial, proverbial example of men's greatest inhumanity to man. How do you explain the Holocaust? And other similar atrocities. It comes down to what James says so simply. Man wants. And when we can't have what we want, we'll do anything to get it. What's worse is when we don't even know what we want. And we'll still pursue. And nothing can change this until we find our soul's satisfaction in Christ. Nothing if you are being driven by some compulsion here this morning of any kind, this this passage is diagnosing your problem. Please listen to what it's saying. The disease is something that only can be met in Christ, and the gospel is extended to you as the sole cure. That means being restored to God through Jesus Christ. His third point comes to us. See, we're moving rather quickly. In verses 18 through 19, that there are unfathomable mysteries in life. Don't be surprised that there are things you're never going to be able to figure out here and now. Uh, You're not going to get all the answers that you seek in this life. And this is another truth that we really have to come to grips with if we're going to live sanely in this world if we if we don't accept the fact that we can't understand everything, that we can't explain everything, and shift our gaze elsewhere, our perplexity may well, and it does in some cases, cross over into endless obsession and hopeless despondency. So he gives us four examples here. Uh, of something that's unexplainable an eagle in the sky especially in his age before they un- understood anything of thermal um, uh, 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 invisible thermals as they rise up and how the, the eagle can soar on those thermals how, how do you explain that or or a serpent on a rock I still don't understand how they can slither around on rocks and climb trees they don't have legs they don't have hands it's, it's remarkable or a ship at sea how it can be driven by currents that, that even the pilot of the ship doesn't know are there and can throw them off course or a man and a virgin who knows how love works nobody and it is the tendency of our fallen condition to let the reality that we can't truly know some things to overflow into a sense of being ultimately unable to know anything for certain and the soul can fall into deep despair In the process. Nowhere is that more seen. More experienced. Than when evils are done to us. How many. Are the vast numbers of those. Who have suffered abuses. As children. And they're driven to extremes. Unable to trust others. Or move beyond their pain. Because of the inability to find a reasonable explanation. For the massive sense of betrayal. And pain that they feel. You might know something of that yourself this morning. And it's a torturous place to be. Think of the confusion of a faithful and loving spouse having been betrayed. And you ache to have an answer. Why is it like this? A child experiencing the unspeakable confusion and heartache of divorced or divorcing parents not being able to attach any meaning to it and and what that does inwardly. Survivors of kidnappings or mass tragedies, those who have been senselessly mugged or raped or attacked, even just being ripped off by a slick salesman can bring on this enormous need to somehow make sense of it. And if I can make sense of it, it'll be fine. But of course, that never actually does satisfy and this is a driving need for many, uh, an obsessive and destructive need for some. Look, look at our compulsion, like we just had in that wonderful song I quoted, uh, uh, to blame someone for every pain or heartache or suffering that we endure. Our entire legal system banks on that impulse. If I've been hurt, some, there must be some reason and there must be somebody to blame. Blame. So if I'm hurt in a car, I'm calling Will and William Matar. It's that simple. Right? Sometimes there are no answers. It's one of those deep, unfillable voids that we already heard about in the first section. The heart and the mind instinctively and incessantly cry out for answers. Suffering must make sense if it's going to be bearable to us. But the truth is, beloved, we've got to face this. There are a vast number of things in this life we will never be able to explain. I've I've had that any number of times when I've introduced my wife and people have looked at her and then they've looked at me and said, What? There's no explanation for this. But if we're not able to take those inexplicable things and offer them up to God and to trust that He knows both why, and that he has our best interest at heart in allowing us to experience them, we can sink into some form of madness. Many a crazy person that we see today is merely caught in the endless rehearsing of facts and experiences and feelings that could have or should have been said or done, but were never said or done or shouldn't have happened until all grip on reality is gone. There's many a heart that's lost in this cycle of seeking some reasonable explanation. Searching for an answer that may never come. It's here that we need to learn the lesson of Job. If you've read the book of Job, then you've found out that it was better to come to know the who behind life's mysteries than the why. I'm reminded of the old hymn, the words of Ira Stanfill. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine, for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry or the future, for I know what Jesus said, and today I'll walk beside him, for he knows what is ahead. I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring me poverty, but the one who feeds the sparrow is the one who stands by me. And the path that be my portion may be through the flame or flood, but His presence goes before me, and I'm covered in His blood. Then that refrain, I've sung it to myself countless times, many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow, and I know He holds my hand. We need to live there, and we don't. Maybe we could change that that last refrain just slightly. Many things about my sorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds my sorrow. And I know he holds my hand. Uh, Paul refers to this as the mystery of iniquity. We can't answer all these things. I can't explain it any more than I can fathom how a snake navigates a rock or how love in the human heart works between two people. I don't know how there can be those who commit grave sins, like in verse 20 he mentions, yet go away like it's nothing at all. I don't get it. But I can know that my God knows. That He knows and watches over me. That He knows and makes all things work together for the good to those who are called according to His purpose. Some things will never completely make sense to us, no matter how often we revisit them. (sighs) mull over them, strain at trying to attach what seems to be reasonable explanations to us or to others' actions, opinions, or mindsets. They simply defy logic. But we can't let such mysteries consume our hearts and minds. Beloved, please, don't let such mysteries consume you. Be consumed with the revelations of God to us, especially as they come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is made to us, we're told in the New Testament. Wisdom. All things ultimately will make sense in Him, even if we can't make sense of it now. Peace is not a product of understanding everything, but of knowing and loving the one who does understand everything. As Galatians 5, 6 reminds us, quote, Faith works by Love, close quote, when we're fully convinced of the love of God and as it's seen best in the cross of Christ dying for our sins, then we know who it is we can trust with everything. Fabulous. Fourth, in verses 21 through 23, there are unfitting realities in life. Unfitting realities, so don't be surprised at injustice here. It's, it's going to be. Uh, once again, we're given four examples to muse on. He mentions here a slave when he's made a king. It is unfitting for those who are unfit to lead in positions of leadership. And it's just the way it is. It's an unfitting thing in life. And those who are unfit for leadership ruling over the lives and the destinies of multitudes of others. that doesn't make sense. It's unfitting, but it's a reality. He mentions then a filled fool. It's unfitting when there are foolish men and women that have come to enjoy great wealth and satisfaction. They will do the stupidest things. Need I say the word Kardashian? I mean, it's not hard to see. Then he mentions the gotcha gal. Uh, As much as I've worked through this with a dozen or more commentators, ultimately it's the picture of a woman who suffered long in her singleness, who finally snagged a husband, and then becomes completely obnoxious to all of her single friends. It's unfitting. And then the replacement wife... When a maidservant displaces her mistress, or in our day when the boss leaves the wife who put him through college and raised the kids to run off with the secretary. it's unfitting. Some things just aren't fitting. Entertainers earn more than doctors and educators and scientists. We cry with loud voices to protect endangered species of fish and birds and other animals which is all good and well but at the same time murdering a million plus children in their mothers' wombs every year it's unfitting. Pedophiles can run public websites and Christians can't play can't pray at public events. And as a friend of mine recently emailed me He said, quote, In America, we're expected to be against capital punishment but support abortion on demand, believe that gender roles are artificial, but being homosexual is natural, close quote. It's unfitting. The truth is we live in a fallen world, and such a fallen world will be filled with unfitting things. Criminals at times will be treated like victims, and victims will be treated like criminals. Criminals. Laws will be passed to hinder good and advance evil. And wisdom and common sense will be forsaken for political position to accomplish an agenda or simply because some people love the ludicrous. There's no end to it. And lest we grow mad in ourselves as we see it all around us, we need to be grounded in the fact that the Bible told us this is the way it was going to be. This is what sin does. This is sin at work. It's what happens when creatures want to usurp the Creator's place. We're unfit, and, we all, and all we do will, be, will result in unfitting things. Can I just exhort you? Don't despair, Christian. Life doesn't end here. This is not the way it will always be. Christ is coming. One day all of these wrongs will be made right. And all that is so far from what it ought to be will be brought back into line. Jesus Christ Himself will judge the world in righteousness and His wisdom will prevail. His truth will govern all when it's all said and done. Everything will be in its right place. Every relationship, precisely as it ought to be, and the fullness of Christ's redemptive work will permeate and characterize all of creation. We can last till then by the power of His Spirit. There will be all sorts of unfitting things in the meantime, but not one that will not be made right in Christ. So don't go mad, go biblical. Right? Go, go to 1 Peter 1.13. I love what he says here. Uh, talking to a, a group of people that were in a world that had been turned upside down for them. Quote, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded. Oh God, give us sober-mindedness in this day. Being sober-minded. How? Well, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the next... Huh? Oh, it doesn't say at the next time we vote, at the next election. (laughs) Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you're not setting your hope fully on that, you're going to be constantly disappointed at everything else. There will always be unfitting realities in life, injustices that we can't right. Things that just aren't right but nevertheless exist. And this is the truth. Christ is Lord over all of those 2 Isn't that wonderful? Fifth, verses 24 through 28. There is untapped wisdom in creation all around you. So don't be surprised if some of the answers to what you need are right in front of you. Now, the four examples that he gives us here are interesting. And they speak to one of the most primal realities that any of us face in life, at least I know for me, we hate the thought of, let alone the experience of, being powerless. We don't like being helpless. The the closer I move into the fossil stage of life, the more I'm aware that those times will come when I'll be relatively helpless. I don't like it. I, I have a, a, a strange little genetic disorder which my wife refers to as the Princess Bride Disease. If you know that movie, you'll know the time when Wesley was half dead. And when I have these episodes, I get incredibly weak, so weak that I can't pick up a cup of coffee or crawl up a, a flight of stairs except on all fours. And I hate nothing more than being that weak. Too bad. <laughs> (laughs) I have a God who's infinitely strong. The sense of futility and, and even anger and rage that accompanies our times of being helpless or powerless can be attested to by each one of us. Just think back to the last time you suffered the slightest injustice and found yourself unable to reverse it. I mean, that's just, it gnaws at you. People we can't impact infuriate and terrify us. The the purchase of insurance, at least in part, is always an attempt to hedge against the inevitable, an attempt to bring peace regarding things we can't control, accidents and death and that sort of a thing. And, And that's good and well. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But we do what we can to take away the threat of the ravages of things we can't maintain power over. That's a good thing. But there's some things we can't insure against. We groan when our elected officials make decisions contrary to our wishes. We can't do much about that. And when we see it happening nationally, when when governmental decisions flatly contradict what's known to be the majority will of the people, we're outraged and we feel helpless. Helpless. We see the inherent multiplication of evil when adults abuse their children. And and, and we rage at that, but we're powerless, it seems, to do much. And the powerlessness of their victims bites into our hearts, and we feel especially pained. It's why denial is so often our first response to things like this. The horror of helplessness is behind the anger, depression, and utter despair of those who... Who know they have no chance of changing their lot in life. And we'll we'll endure almost anything as long as we have some measure of control. And so he gives us these four examples. He starts off with the ants. Why the ants? Well, the ants have no power. They're not strong. What do they do? How do they manage in a world where they are virtually the most powerless of all? Well, they do what they can, when they can, and they are cast upon their God. That's a good lesson for us. The rock badgers or the mountain mice, they're tiny and frail. How do they survive? Well, they've learned the secret of hiding in those places that are strong. It's a lesson to us to find our refuge in the strong tower of God's name rather than in our own strength or ability. And then the locusts. They're just bugs. I mean, they can be flicked off with the tiniest finger and and blown about with the slightest wind, and yet entire regions can fall beneath the plague when these feeble little creatures without a leader band together and make an army that none can defeat. It's a wonderful picture of of our being bound together with the host of, of powerless Christians who without the presence of our earthly king right among us right now, yet we march on for Christ's kingdom and in the process we've seen empires brought down. The unity of the powerless sons of God when they're relying on the power of their God is extraordinary. And lastly, the lizard, or as some translations have it, uh, the spider. Both of them are little and frail and easily caught and extinguished, but in their usefulness, They're not only found, but allowed to live in the finest places, even in king's palaces, because they eat bugs. They're good things. Their natural capacity to rid their environment of a multitude of other pests makes a way for them, even when they would not be tolerated naturally. So, as I was listening the other day to a a very well-named atheist uh, pontificating on why religion is so bad, he had to admit that when Christians are actually living up to the ideals of the Scripture, that they are really useful pests in society. (laughs) Well, that's okay. I'll be a useful pest. That's all right by me. Power is sought by by all of us. Power over a cheating spouse, an abusing superior, a stronger opponent. Just power over the indefatigable waves of life as it comes our way. But power over things is not what we need in life. No, trust and confidence in the one who rules and reigns over all. That's what we need. Confidence that he has made us as we are, that his hand is upon us. That his gifts and capacities that he's placed within us are more than meat for the hour if we look to him. That we can run to him and be safe, that we are our beloveds and he is ours, and, and that's enough. Think of Jesus who cast off all of his divine prerogatives, becoming a helpless, powerless baby in the hands of a couple of scared, goofed up teenagers in a backwater town under the rulership of of horrifically twisted governments. Hmm. And later, he cared nothing to have power over the enemies who would mock and beat and crucify him. But as we read in 1 Peter 2, he committed himself. He entrusted himself fully to the one who judges justly oh that we would do that if that was enough for him surely it will suffice for us six then i'll move quicker here there are verses 29 through 31 there are unlinked similarities in life Uh, subtitle please don't miss this not everything is a conspiracy men simply share a common fallen nature And similarities are not necessarily indicators of actual plots or schemes. But our driving need to make sense of things we observe or experience in life can easily lend itself into drawing connections between dots that ought not to exist. It's one of the prevailing reasons why we're so quick. Maybe you don't do that. I know you're a lot more spiritual than I am. But you never, we never judge anyone else's motives, do we? No, no. Now, this, and, and especially when we've been offended in some way, we're sure to attach motives to it. We very quickly imagine that a failure to shake hands or a missed thank you note or an, an unanswered email or an unacknowledged phone call or passing glance of the eye is filled with all sorts of sin and menace. Shame on us. Our text gives us four wonderful examples of this dynamic. Lions, roosters, he goats, and kings and with their army with them. What do they all have in common? They all strut. But they don't all strut for the same reason. You can't build a conspiracy out of it. But how quick we're to assume the reasons behind the actions of others with nary a moment's trouble at finding out the truth by means of asking a simple question or two. And by that, I mean asking a question without asking by accusing. Which we're all too prone to do. How many relationships would be spared if people would only assume the law of love? And the law of love assumes no sin in the other person unless it's proven to be otherwise. Boy, what a place to live. And it begins with an assumption of innocence, the way our legal system is supposed to function. Many a time I have agonized over what I thought someone else thought, and then built mental arguments against the things I was certain they held against me, only to have been nothing but a fool in finding out nothing of this sort existed at all. you ever fought those battles in your mind and then realized, no, that was stupid? The way I took another person's facial expression, and, and rather than asking to find out what the truth was, I constructed an entire scenario in my head that wasn't rooted in a thimbleful of reality. Note too that in our present day conspiracy theories exist for just about everything. There's the conspiracy of fluoride in the toothpaste. There's the conspiracy of, I don't know, people trying to put an extra hydrogen atom in your water. There's there's conspiracies all around us. Is it any wonder that sinful people think similarly? Of course not. That's the way it is. And does that mean that somehow they've instituted a global conspiracy that includes more people in more countries under more different cultural biases than we can shake a stick at? Probably not. I'm pretty sure I don't have to tie Putin together with some gubernatorial race in Pennsylvania. Are there some conspiracies? Well, sure there are. But history has shown that large ones are almost impossible to sustain for very long. We know that. But we do know that people's sin can be counted on to make them brag and leak information at enormous rates, which makes conspiracies tough. But you see, we simply must have the reason behind anything we can't fathom normally. Uh, Don Carson, in his wonderful little book, Exegetical Fallacies, I told him he owes me royalties on that book because apparently somebody had sent him a box of my, my preaching and he had written a whole book about it called Exegetical Fallacies. But he has a, he has a There's a great poem in that book about making these unwarranted connections. He said, why are fire engines red? Follow the reasoning, because you can follow this reasoning in tomorrow's newspaper or on the news tonight from some pundit. Trust me. Why are fire engines red? First, because they've got eight wheels and four people on them. Eight plus four equals twelve. There are twelve inches in a foot. One foot is a ruler. There was a ruler named Queen Elizabeth. A ship named Queen Elizabeth sailed the seas. In the seas are fish, and the fish have fins, and the fins fought the Russians. The Russians are red, fire engines are always Russian, and therefore fire engines are red. Now I'm sure you heard that on TV. Because that's the way we work. We've got to make these connections. And they might not even exist. What what unwarranted connections have you been plagued by? And then made equally unwarranted conclusions because of? The lion struts, the rooster struts, the he-goat struts, the king with his army struts. And not a one of them is connected to the other. They are just plain similarities. And they're not truth because we can observe the similarity. Can I point you to a real conspiracy? Here's a conspiracy I want you to really meditate on, spend some effort on. It's the divine conspiracy of the triune God to bring saving grace to a lost race. Here's a conspiracy. A heavenly Father so lovingly acting toward lost and rebellious creatures and so determined to reconcile them to himself that he decides to send his only begotten son to clothe himself in human in the likeness of fallen flesh and to live out perfect righteousness and die as a substitutionary death in our place. And then the divine Son, so loving the Father and those that the Father loves, agrees to give up all the eternal felicities of heaven, to come and live among us in our depravity, to suffer His holiness, to be offended by the stench of our collective sin, love us and die in our place, suffering the just wrath of God that we deserved, and making an atonement for sin in His his own blood for His enemies. And then the Holy Spirit carrying out the design of the Father and the Son so as to use the gospel of Christ to bring forth life in those that the Father elected. Regenerating and indwelling rank sinners. Creating faith in our hearts. Opening our eyes to our sin and the remedy for that sin and the substitutionary death of Christ. And abiding within us to work out the work of conforming us each to the image of the Son until that full fullness is brought about. Until we're at last we're brought to glory. That's a conspiracy. That's what you want to meditate on. And lastly. Verses 32 and 33. There are unavoidable consequences to our thoughts and actions. If we're arrogant we will be brought low by the hand of our Lord who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's just the truth. So the text You twist someone's nose, you'll make it bleed. You harp on anger and harbor anger and you'll produce strife. You can't get around it. You set your mind on sinful things, you'll sin. You sow to the flesh, you'll reap to the flesh. You sow to the spirit, you'll reap spiritual things. You cannot grow in grace, feeding your heart and mind on ungodly things. So with all those things before us, let me close with one summarizing example of this last principle. That there's going to be these unavoidable consequences to our thoughts and our actions. It's found for us in Romans 2. I'm going to read 6 through 10 for you. He, Christ, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Those who set themselves to continue in rebellion against the right of God to exercise His supremacy over our lives by refusing the salvation and the Lordship found in Jesus Christ alone will perish in an eternity of judgment, even as we heard in this very pulpit just a few weeks ago. But those who own their guilt and their sin And who flee to Christ for forgiveness. For every one of them there's forgiveness. There's cleansing. And there's reconciliation to the Father. And the transforming spirit to restore Christ's image in them. There's the gift of eternal life. Where you stand this very hour in regard to either condition as it's been stated. It has its inevitable consequence. So unbeliever... Won't you come to Him today? Won't you come to this one, this divine conspirator who has contrived so much that you might be saved from your sin? And Christian, won't you glory in your King who has become to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your word and of your goodness and of your glory and of your grace. And we thank you so much for the privilege of just being able to be together this morning and to rehearse some of these truths. Father, how desperately there are some in this building, this very moment, who need your saving grace. Work by your Spirit. Open their eyes to their sin and to the wonder of what is in the cross of Christ. And for my brothers and sisters today, I pray that the wisdom of your word will permeate our hearts and minds and give us stable minds as we face the uh, often ridiculous and unfathomable realities of this life. Thank you for providing it all for us in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.